Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. For those of you regular listeners who have been eagerly anticipating season two of the podcast, I have some good news and some bad news. First is the bad. What you're listening to is not season two, but instead a bonus preseason episode. But there is some good news. At the end of this episode, you'll hear a trailer for season two, which will launch in just five weeks on March 23rd. So why a bonus episode? I'll admit that the reason for this is largely self-promotional. On February 22nd, Oxford University Press will publish my first book, Industry, Bang on a Can and New Music in the Marketplace. Normally, this is a podcast where I interview other musicologists, but today I've instead decided to put myself in the hot seat, the host is now the guest. I'm joined today right now, in fact, by my producer, D. Edward Davis, who will be interviewing me about the book and my recent research. Hi, Eddie. Hey, Will. Thanks for having me as the host of your podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for, uh, for, for joining us today. I gave Eddie an early copy of the book, and he's come up with a bunch of questions for me about it. So we're going to kind of see what happens. Normally, I'd start this episode by giving a long spiel about why the work of today's guest is essential for you to know about, but that would be a little bit weird under these specific circumstances. So I'll instead simply say that I've got this book coming out. I spent a bunch of years researching and writing it, and I generally like talking about it. So I hope you enjoy hearing about it. So now let's turn to today's guest on sound expertise, Will Robin, assistant professor of musicology at the University of Maryland, and also me. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Is that the, the theme song coming that's in the right theme, there? That's the theme song. You said it's been multi-years in the process of putting this together. Can you describe a little bit just like what the what the genesis of this project was and then take us through, uh, you know, up to the present day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Um, so the book goes back to my dissertation, which um, was something I was working on in grad school from, I don't know, like 2013, 2012, 2013 to 2016. Um, and the kind of longer arc of that is that, you know, I became really interested in contemporary classical music in undergrad um, via like reading Alex Ross's amazing book, The Rest is Noise, and, and began following the kind of scene of younger American composers, um, US-based composers um, that were like kind of popping up on the internet in the early 2000s, people like Nico Muley and Judd Greenstein, um, who were kind of up and coming then and are kind of more established now. Um, and at that time, I also became aware of Bagana Can as this kind of really interesting um, group of composers who had these marathon concerts that were really cool. Um, I went to one of their big marathons in 2010, like right after I graduated college in downtown New York. It was like, there were all these people there. They were playing all this cool music. It like seemed like a really kind of hip scene. Um, and when I was in grad school and, and started kind of researching, thinking more and more about whether I wanted to research contemporary music in the US as, as kind of my main focus. I had a couple other things that I was thinking about. Um, I was following the, the younger scene that at that time was called indie classical, um, this kind of group of musicians who were interested in blurring boundaries between classical and popular music and also kind of putting out their work in these kind of DIY entrepreneurial um, 
you know, start your own record label, start your own ensemble approaches. Um, again, uh, like around organizations like New Amsterdam Records and, and ensembles like Y Music, composers like um, Missy Mazzoli or um, Timo Andres or, or Nico Muley. Um, and so like I ended up settling on, on wanting to figure out like what are the, what was this indie classical thing? What did that term mean? What was this larger scene? And as part of trying to figure that out, I, I thought it was important to historicize what I thought at the time indie classical was going back to Bang on a Can, because a lot of these musicians actually studied at Bang on a Can Summer Festival for young musicians, which was started in the early 2000s. And it seems like the root of this idea of composition, contemporary composition being a place where you can incorporate rock music, jazz, world music, as well as contemporary composition being a place where you can kind of start your own thing and build it from the ground up, um, kind of outside the academy purportedly. Um, both of those seem, things seemed kind of rooted in, in Bang in a Can, which um, you know, started in 1987 as the project of these three composers who were at the time you know, in their mid twenties, early thirties, um, coming out of graduate studies at Yale and decided to put on a marathon concert um, in downtown New York of all these different kind of styles of contemporary music. Um, and obviously can talk a lot more about what that was uh, later. But um, so like, as I was working on the dissertation, I started doing a lot of research into Bag in a Can. I was very um, lucky to have the support of the, the founding composers, David Lang, Michael Gordon and Julia Wolf, um, who, you know, basically gave me access to them in terms of interviewing and also um, gave me access to their institution and its archives, um, which became a really important source of research. Um, and the staff there, um, uh, Tim Thomas and, and Kenny Savelson in particular were really important and, and helpful in, in letting me look at a lot of materials that no one had looked at before. And then what ended up happening basically was for a number of logistical reasons, uh, the dissertation got, um, the, the, the pre-2000 chunk of the dissertation got kind of chopped off in the final stages. Um, in part, that was because I had to finish very quickly for a, a, a very good reason, which is that I had a, a job um, at the University of Maryland, which I have now. Um, and then also more practical and kind of methodological reasons, which is that indie classical as a term came to be around 2008 or so, uh, 2007, 2008, and became kind of a, a term in vogue in the 2010s. And, you know, Bang on a Can emerged in the late 1980s. And although it has resonances with this term, I didn't, and, and people, when they would use this term, would often say, Bang on a Can is kind of a precursor to indie classical. I wanted to really see what indie classical was from that era. And then subsequently, basically post-dissertation, move backwards into the 1980s and 1990s and see what Bang on a Can was in that era to kind of understand these as discrete time periods with their own ideas about what new music was, their own kind of institutional infrastructures that were quite different, um, you know, especially around just basic things like the internet as a kind of forum for discussion and contemporary music as well as, you know, releasing their albums and stuff like that was not something happening in the, in the 80s and 90s, so. So at the moment in that you lopped that piece off of your dissertation, did you know at that moment that this was deserved to be a whole project on its own? A whole yeah, book? yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, I think, you know, in my first year at Maryland, basically what I, what I uh, someone smartly said to do is to take a, I don't remember, maybe um, my, my Chapel Hill advisor or someone else um, said, you know, like in your first year out of a dissertation, like don't, start working on your book yet. And so I ended up spinning the dissertation into a couple of journal articles about kind of issues in the indie classical world. And then 
starting to think about what the book would be and realizing that the kind of core of research that I had done on Bang in a Can and on the 80s and 90s that hadn't made it into the dissertation, there was a lot more work to be done to flesh that out and that it could potentially make a, um, a, like a, a solid book project um, that would use Bang on a Can as a kind of central figure in a larger understanding of the kind of, um, of, the, of the bigger world of new music in the 1980s and 1990s. So the book touches on a lot of those kind of bigger issues, like you just mentioned, the recording industry, the um, funding and arts administration. Uh, do you, and you're kind of using, like you just said, you're using Bang on a Can as an example of like a, almost a case study in and how they negotiated some of those changes. Yeah, you know, it's, it's tricky uh, kind of balancing how to talk about the book in short form versus, I, I guess I just want everyone to like read the whole thing, which is a silly thing uh, to yeah, want, a, a nice thing to want, but also- This podcast very short and just say, get the book. And yeah, 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 it. buy the book and read it. And uh, then uh, yeah, say it's good and right, give me five stars on Amazon or Goodreads or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, the the book is obviously, Bang on a Can is, is that the center of the book. Um, but what I, I think is almost like, it's as I say that I also feel like the everything that is in the book that's not bang and akin is to a certain degree like more important than bang and I can like one of the arguments that I think I'm trying to advance which is I think tricky and maybe will or will not come across to readers is like I don't see bang on a can in the 1980s and the 1990s as like the most important thing happening in new music in this period um but I see it as a very representative thing happening which is to say that basically the ascent of this organization, which starts off as a kind of DIY marathon concert put on by three young composers in 1987 in a Soho Art Gallery. Um, and within a couple of years of that becomes a kind of multi-event festival housed in different downtown spaces in, in downtown New York. Um, and from that launches its own um, touring ensemble, the All-Stars in 1992, from that, starts recording albums first for a kind of academic label called CRI and then gets a big contract with Sony Classical. And at that time also starts putting on its marathons at Lincoln Center. And then by the late 1990s has kind of established a significant um, institutional infrastructure for itself, a large audience um, and, and really strong ties to the classical and contemporary classical worlds. Um, and so you can you can hear Ira upstairs right now. Uh, he's going to take a nap soon, I think. Um, and so that was all happening. And the reasons why Bang on a Can was able to establish such a strong foothold were due to I think the the kind of smarts and savvy and and work of and labor of of David Lang, Michael Gordon, and Julie Wolf, as well as. Um, a lot of people who worked for and with them. And also the bigger picture, which I is the kind of bigger argument of the book is what I call this kind of marketplace turn in new music, which is that there are all these different institutions from DIY things like Diana Can or kind of small academic record labels like Composer Recordings Inc. to big classical music institutions like Sony Classical or BMG or um, another record label or Lincoln Center who are all beginning to think that contemporary music can both be a source for renewing their audiences and also that contemporary music 
is an avenue that is basically contemporary music survival and kind of flourishing will depend on reaching a large, broad, broad audience. Um, and, you know, that's to a certain degree upends a lot of um, what had been kind of the norms in new music from let's say the 1950s to the 1970s, where um, there was this kind of idea famously articulated by Milton Babbitt um, that composers could retreat from the marketplace and into the university and kind of other other more private homes for their music. Uh, it's kind of an undercurrent in modernist music going back to, you know, Arnold Schoenberg or whatever. Um, and, you know, I don't want to overstate, I don't want to say that Milton Babbitt was the only voice in that conversation. He wasn't. Um, but, you know, there wasn't necessarily a concern in those post-war decades with the idea of contemporary music having a mass appeal. Um, instead, the concern was on kind of sonic experimentation for its own sake. Um, and there was a whole Cold War um, infrastructure of institutions that helped support those composers do those things. Um, and there are a lot of scholars who have written all about that um, in detail, uh, fleshing out what this Cold War network uh, um, was. Um, so like most recently, uh, there's there's been books by Eduardo Herrera and Michael Wee who have dealt with this. Um, there's work by Rachel Vandegrift, uh, Richard Teruskin and Treffler, a lot of other scholars. Um, and so I'm kind of saying, okay, like this, this Cold War infrastructure existed and, and still kind of exists, but also there's a new infrastructure that emerges around this kind of marketplace issue or, or that changes at least in the second second period, the 80s and 90s. And so to go way back to your question, like, yes, Bang Anakin is the kind of central participant, but it's a way to kind of reveal all of this other, the kind of institutional fabric that's either changing or, or declining or ascending in this period. When you talk about that idea of the, the Milton Babbitt, the who cares listen, or in the book, you also um, talk a lot about Charles Wernin and his sort of, um, how would I describe it? Sort of like an anti-populist attitude. I don't know if that's the right language yeah. of what he would use, but he would say that, you know, anyone who is writing accessible music is catering to popular demands and, and therefore is unworthy of respect in that way. How does Bang on a Ken, when they enter the picture here in this kind of pivotal moment, what, what's your take on their, their sort of are they selling out? Are they courting popular approval in some way? Like what's what's their position in this? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so, you know, basically in the course of all of their early studies, uh, Lyon, Gordon, and Wolf all have encounters with the kind of dominant force in the academy of like serial composition, um, which, you know, whether or not scholars have endlessly and musicians have endlessly debated whether or not like serialism was this kind of like tyrannical thing that like every composer had to write atonal music in the 1960s or 50s, which is certainly not true. Um, but it was certainly something that had a lot of prestige in the academy and that. There's a quote in your book that's something like, it's like being Catholic in, in yeah, yeah, Italy yeah. in the 16th century or something like that. Like, yeah, it's you know, like it's uh, it's a Jacob Druckmann quote, who's uh, Druckmann was was all of their teachers at Yale. Um, like you know, being you had to you had to do it. Uh, like you had to at least try serialism or whatever. Um, and so all of those, all three of them, mostly in their undergraduate studies, and and um, had some kind of exposure to serial composition and often kind of wrestled with it. Um, they, all of them actually, to a certain degree, absorbed serial ideas into their music. Um, but all of them ultimately rejected the idea that they should have a path in the academy as their kind of main kind of um, identity as a composer. And so- path in, the, path in the academy, you mean like to become a composition professor? To become a, a composition professor, which is ironic, of course, because all three of them now teach composition, uh, two at, uh, at major, well, all three at, at um, 
uh, major institutions. Just um, for purposes of of explaining things clearly to our audience, yes. when you say all three, maybe we should name the. Yes. So we have our all star. Well, not the all stars because that's a different thing. <laughs> we'll talk maybe talk about that later. But we have starting lineup: David David Lang, who has won a Pulitzer Prize for The Little Match Girl Passion uh, in two thousand eight or something like that. Julia Wolf, who's won a Pulitzer Prize for Anthracite Fields and. 2015 or 16 and Michael Gordon who has not won a Pulitzer Prize but has won numerous other awards um and um they all hoping that our audience would know who we're talking about but it's good yes yeah 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 yeah. so these three composers all studied together at Yale in the early 1980s um and it was at Yale that they kind of Yale was fairly unusual as a kind of top tier academic program in that the two main composition teachers there at the time, um, Jacob Druckmann and Martin Bresnik, Bresnik is still teaching there, um, did not, were not serial advocates in any way. Um, Druckmann was actually someone who was kind of opposed to serial composition. He was a, saw himself as a new romantic and kind of cultivated that at, at these festivals he put on in the New York Philharmonic in the eighties. Um, and they also, especially Druckmann really encouraged their students to seek out the kind of public careers that we might associate it with like an Aaron Copeland, but we're not necessarily the careers of either a Milton Babbitt or his students, or like even a John Cage and his kind of acolytes um, in the downtown world. Um, and so all three of these composers- they didn't want to become uh, in, in, in enmeshed in the academy in their future. Yeah, and not just enmeshed in the academy in terms of teaching, but the idea of the, it, like if we, if we say, imagine a, a fake composer who goes to graduate, a fake composer who wants to be a composer in let's say 1975 or whatever, or a real, but whatever, let's, let's play the fictional composer game. And so like, you know, I think there were generally kind of two pathways to be a composer in that period. Um, One was you, you know, do your undergrad and then you go to graduate school at maybe an Ivy League institution or something similar like a Yale, a Brandeis, Harvard, a UC Berkeley, and you'd probably end up encountering serial composers and atonal composition. And you'd probably spend a lot of time analyzing um, works of composers like Webern and maybe Babbitt. Um, and you would ultimately, if, if you chose to go down that path, you would probably end up um, becoming a kind of composer theorist. So you would be publishing articles in a journal called Perspectives of New Music, which is kind of a very academic, heady, theoretical journal where a lot of these composers published analyses of other composers' works. You might have be composing pieces for um, ensembles that were associated with the university's system, like the Group for Contemporary Music or Speculum Musicae. This world was kind of known as uptown, um, whether or not it was in New York or not, because it referred to kind of the axis of Columbia University and the scene around Columbia where Babbitt um, um, taught, um, partly as well as at Princeton. Um, That entire scene was very much nationally was um, infused with uh, Cold War era funding, which is something that Michael Wee writes about in his book um, from the Rockefeller Foundation. So that pathway was like, you could have a kind of self-sustaining semi-public, semi-private world associated around the academy and make a career as a composer. And you would ultimately end up probably getting a, a tenure track job. Morton Feldman has this famous essay where he kind of denounces this entire thing and talks about it, the idea of teachers teaching teachers teachers or something like that. Just like that, that the composition kind of feeds on itself in ways that are, that are um, you know, ultimately alienating to, to creativity potentially and also the public. And whether or not you buy that argument is not super relevant to, to my book. Um, so that's one pathway. The other pathway is, Maybe you don't go to graduate school. Maybe you do an undergraduate degree and then 
you're interested in kind of sonic experimentation and you end up in the San Francisco Bay Area or in downtown New York and you're part of a kind of community of like-minded musicians who are experimenting with graphic scores or improvisation or computers or um, electronics. And that's the kind of post John Cage so-called downtown approach um, that's sometimes called experimentalism. And, you know, the minimalist composers, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, Lamont Young, Terry Riley, um, very much come out of that world. Um, but by the mid 1970s, you begin to see the minimalists taking that ethos of downtown, but also having actually careers, um, being able to sell out concerts of their music, touring with their own ensembles, starting to get big record contracts. And the kind of defectors from the uptown scene are the neo-romantics who like David Del Tredici start out at places like Princeton writing academic music, decide to instead write very kind of sumptuous 19th century style music um, uh, and, and end up finding success in the concert hall. So like, this is a very long precursor to say, by the 1980s, there were these models for Bang on a Can to look to for composers to make careers outside of the academy and to make careers outside of like a kind of somewhat insular downtown avant-garde. And so at Yale, they're encouraged to do that. Um, they are very much, all three of them are laser focused on minimalism as the kind of background vocabulary for what they want to do musically, very much especially the music of Steve Reich and also the music of Louis Andreessen was a big influence, the Dutch post-minimalist. And so when they start kind of basically end up on the New York scene in the mid 1980s, as they tell the story, they look around, they don't see a lot for their generation of composers. They don't see a lot of younger composers reaching mainstream audiences, although that is ha certainly happening in certain places of New York. And so they decide to start this festival to reach a larger audience for new music. The kind of rhetoric that they talk about in terms of the audience that they wanted to reach was basically like, their friends who would, you know, read the New Yorker and go to the Museum of Contem uh, Museum of Modern Art and, you know, go see some cool film, but would not, you know, would listen to the Talking Heads or whatever rather than um, contemporary composition. That's their kind of key, like demographic. Um, and then the second thing that they wanted to do with the marathon was they felt that those worlds of uptown and downtown they saw them as being kind of frozen in terms of not mixing with each other and that. Um, there was a kind of, kind of basically, you know, these uptown and downtown worlds were kind of largely um, not mixing with one another and that they both as composers, each of them kind of grabbed different things from uptown and downtown. And so they put on this marathon concert um, with the goal of mixing different styles of, of contemporary music. They, they build it as an eclectic super mix. Um, it was in the 1987 marketing and with the goal of trying to the idea that if maybe you bring together music from all these different kind of clashing worlds, you might also reach a new audience who um, was not necessarily kind of frozen in one attitude or another. Um, and by all accounts, they were successful. You know, they sold out the concert. There were like 400 plus people there, uh, you know, people dropping in and out from 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. Um, at this gallery. And, um, you know, they, they invited all these young composers uh, to perform. There were like maybe 20 or 30 pieces on the program. So some of their contemporaries, pieces by themselves, um, uh, major figures in new music. They famously had a piece by Milton Babbitt back to back with a piece by Steve Reich to kind of point out the uptown downtown binary and how they were, you know, pushing past it, complicating it. Um, it also seems like, you know, they were really um, carefully trying to cultivate a social scene as well. Like there's alcohol at the concerts, 
they say come and go as you want so that's a 12-hour concert but they don't expect you to be in your seat you know um reverently listening to every second of every piece so the, the kind of programming of those controversial works it also means like gives you something to talk about with people you know go out and get dinner somewhere during the concert come back and you know you you have uh, some some context of complicated stuff to talk about yeah, absolutely. You know, they really felt that, and like, you know, they didn't have program notes. Instead, they had composers introduce things from the stage. They wanted to basically kind of get rid of a lot of the kind of formal trappings of, of the traditional classical concert um, and make it more of a social situation. Now, like that, I think they, they really talk about that being strong, a strong part of, of something that they saw as unique. Um, if you look at what it's going on in places like Experimental Intermedia, a downtown kind of venue that's been around for I don't know, 50 or 60 years now, um, basically a lot, you know, the loft concert scenes, those were all informal social scenes. So it's not like that part of what they were doing was actually that radical, but they, I think in part because they came from the academy, they saw it as, as different. Um, one of the things that they cite, and I have a whole thing about this in the book that we don't have to get into today, but um, is really important as a precursor for um, Bang on a Can were these marathon concerts at Yale that the an undergraduate kind of, this undergraduate kind of downtowny leftist-ish um, student collective called Sheep's Clothing started putting on these marathon concerts at Yale in the late 1970s, um, kind of overseen at first by Martin Bresnik. Um, and they, the Bang McCann folks, when they were in grad school at Yale, went to some of these concerts. David Lang participated in them. One of those performances, so they did all these long marathons, which became the, the um, model for Bang McCann's marathons. I don't remember if I actually talk about this in the book, but one of the one of the concerts that Sheep's Clothing put on was, um, it was like uh, 10 minutes, something like 10 minutes of music followed by an hour long intermission, followed by 10 minutes of music with the idea that like the intermission was the best part because like, you know, a bunch of young composers, all they want to do is like talk about what they heard and like eat pizza. I think they were like went next door or whatever to the Yale and ate like great New Haven pizza or something. Um, and so I think that's always been part of, of the mentality of Bang Can too, of like, you know, I mean, and and you did the Bang Can Summer Festival. You spent a lot of time with Bang Can. Like there is something, I mean, deeply enjoyable about like dropping in and dropping out, um, not in terms of doing acid, but in terms of, uh, uh, you know, go going and, and watching something and then going out in the hall and like, why, I mean, I had this experience with you at a Bang and a Can Marathon of just like, you know, catching up and chatting and like seeing your friends and it's, um, you know, it becomes a social situation that, that um, you know, the music is the draw that, that brings those people together and then you have all the things to talk about and catch up with. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I participated as a composer in the Bang on a Can Summer Festival in 2016 and some of my best memories of that well, obviously the the hangs with everyone and the connections that I made with the other participants, but also the falling out of between participants after a performance of a piece that some people liked and some people didn't like. And, you know, we don't have to get, we don't, we won't name names, but tears were definitely shed over aesthetic preferences and falling outs. And I feel like that's a really important part of that scene is giving you a chance to, um, you know, to cry about what you love. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, it's hard to say, like, I, I, I ultimately don't know what the scene, what the feeling was of people at a, let's say, group for contemporary music at Colum concert at the Columbia University in the, in the 1980s. Maybe it was the same as that, where it's like, you know, people getting to really hash things out. And, and but, you know, I think that Bang on a Can at least had always this idea that, like, strong opinions are good, presenting lots of different things back to back against one another allows people to articulate those opinions. And, and, you know, they, they have certainly been, I think all people 
who have welcomed the idea of, you know, people arguing, arguing in a friendly way about music uh, versus um, perhaps arguing in a, in a nasty way about music, which is I think how they saw some of their, some of their teachers as, or their previous generation. But I'm, I, I mean, to flip the question, flip, flip myself back to host and you, and you on to guest, like, were there things that stood out to you of like either, like this really seems like resonates with my experience or this kind of complicates how I, how I had that experience, like looking back on my experience? Well, one of the things that really resonated with me in the book was when you're talking about um, Bang on a Can's affinity for rock music and the, the kind of trappings of performance. It's in your chapter where you talk about the all-stars and their touring. Um, and you talk specifically about, um, you know, the, the clothes that they would wear on stage and the t kind of taking some of the performativity of a, a rock concert instead of everyone, you know, in tuxedos and polite applause. There's a little bit more of an informal kind of rock concert vibe to it. And one of the ways in which they distinguish themselves, the all-stars from other um, chamber music ensembles is that they play everything amplified. Right. And then that, that becomes, a, you know, you talk in the book about the problems around amplification and sound checks. It takes them a while to realize that they need to have a dedicated sound engineer, uh, which they finally find and don't let go of for decades. Um, the thing that resonated with me about that was that as a participant at the Bang on a Can Festival, I had my own music performed there. And my own music tends to be extremely delicate and very quiet. And, right, right. Um, I, I don't want my music to be played amplified. And so there were some very short conversations where I said, hey, when my piece gets performed, maybe we could just turn all the mics off. And that was um, quickly shot down. Oh, interesting. Huh. I was not allowed to present my music unamplified. So it's interesting the way in which a decision like that, that starts as a kind of a breaking of the orthodoxy of like what you're playing notated, you know, classical music, but amplified what now that becomes its own, you know, orthodoxy, its yeah. own orthodoxy, right? That now you can't break, even break away from that if you wanted to have a different kind of concert experience. Uh, so I was just told this is the time of your sound check. This is what we're doing. <laughs> how it works. Well, um, I mean, that's um, I, like, there's, there's something that that's an undercurrent of the of the book throughout, which is this issue of control. Um, and um, you know, unlike let's say the Metropolitan Opera, um, Bang on a Can is an organization that has always been run by the same three people. Ultimately, although there are a lot that they have staff who they're in collaboration with, and they're in collaboration with musicians and the All Stars. Um, like the the worldview is ultimately David Lang, Michael Gordon, and Julia Wolf. And so, you know, as as important and 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 real as the way that they embrace a kind of inclusivity and omnivorousness in music like there are there are certainly ways in which like they have like things like amplification or even like the format of of a bang on a can marathon in the really late 80s and early 90s um you know that was a, a specific kind of concert experience fully curated by them where like you know everyone gets 10 minutes of music or whatever. And so like, that's not, there's a lot of music that doesn't work well in the format of a marathon context, right? Like I imagine probably your music doesn't, even if it weren't unamplified, like it's not necessarily meant to be heard between all of these different other things as people are coming and going, right? Like like the Bang in a Can marathon specifically, because they do a lot of different other concerts, which I think present all kinds of other things, but like the marathon ethos is, is about cultivating a, a, a social situation and a 
fun situation and an eclectic situation and one that allows for a lot of people to come into the experience, but it is also not necessarily an ideal musical listening experience. It lends itself to a certain kind of repertoire for sure that works well in that yes. situation. And that's why people, I think, even now, you know, basically since the mid nineties have associated Diana Ken with this kind of like hard rocking post-minimalism um, because that's always been part of the All-Stars repertoire. That's always been something that's at the marathons. That's been a hallmark of the styles of the three founding composers, um, especially in those years, yeah. Well, just back to that sort of issue of control. One of the things that was really interesting um, in the chapter about the All-Stars was to talk about how kind of unnatural that ensemble is in its very existence, that most of the time ensembles form because players know each other and like playing together rather than being kind of brought together by um, by a third party. And then they also choose their own repertoire based on pieces that they like to play rather than just being told, this is a concert, here's the repertoire that you're gonna do. There's something that's very unorganic about the way that ensemble was formed. Yeah, you know, when I, the, the Bang on a Can All-Stars, which is an, a sextet of musicians um, with, let me see if I can do it, electric guitar, bass, um, piano, percussion, uh, reeds, clarinet slash saxophone, and cello. Um, you know, that they, they've been around since 1992, and they are still kind of the, the hallmark of what Bang on a Can is, this touring ensemble. And, you know, a lot of people think that Bang on a Can like people, a lot of scholars I'll see refer to the Bang on a Can Ensemble, like like calling Bang on a Can the organization an ensemble because the all-stars are so kind of representative of what the organization, really the kind of most public face of the organization. Like if you Google Bang on a Can and search images, the first thing that come up are pictures of the all-stars. Um, and they've had some fair, fairly consistent membership over the last 20 something years, um, you know, two of the original members are still with the group. Um, the other four have, have changed. Um, and they are a huge model, I think, for what new music ensembles look like today in terms of the amplification, in terms of the repertoire, in terms of the approach, in terms of the idiosyncratic instrumentation. So, you know, a sextet of musicians who did not have any repertoire written for them because that's not like, it's not like a Pierrot group where there's an existing piece that they're kind of modeled after, or certainly it's not like a string quartet. Um, at the same time, like the more I kind of thought about the All-Stars and talked to some of the original All-Stars, the more I realized how odd it is compared to almost any other kind of chamber ensemble you can think of. Um, because Gordon, Lang, and Wolf in the early 1990s realized that they wanted, basically we're getting fielding calls from people in other cities saying like, we want to bring Bang on a Can Marathon to, I don't know, Seattle or, or Mich uh, Minneapolis or something. Um, and like, you know, that's kind of hard to do. They did, they did do some kind of concerts in other cities, but they basically decided to put together a touring ensemble to kind of bring the marathon idea on the road. Um, and so they invited six of the musicians who had either played at the festival a decent amount or were, you know, people that they knew to come together and be this ensemble. Um, and infamously, like when these musicians were first called up and asked to do it, they said like, will you wear Converse All-Stars sneakers and jeans? And, you know, they all had varying responses that were mostly along the lines of like, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, we'll wear what we want. Um, if I wanted to wear a uniform, I would join a regular orchestra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's exactly what I, maybe Stephen Schick said that, um, that, you know, if I wanted to, who's the original percussion, if I wanted to wear a uniform, I'd join an orchestra. Um, and, and, you know, the closest model to a certain degree for the All-Stars is like an actual orchestra, uh, this kind of more top-down organization. Um, because like something like the Kronos Quartet, uh, which is another, I think, important ensemble in this in this world, and in many ways the model for the All-Stars, like that is 
the violinist David Harrington and and his and collaborators coming together as a group. They you know they have a board and and you know they have administrative figures, but they they make all their artistic decisions. The performers make the artistic decisions. Um, you know these uptown groups like Speculum Music High or the Group for Contemporary Music, largely even if they were composers who are artistic directors, those composers would often conduct the groups or they would like play piano in the groups. Um, and then you have other ensembles that are important kind of precursors for Bagnetta Can, um, for example, in the Netherlands, like De Volharding, um, which were actually kind of these radically democratic groups where like they saw themselves as kind of coming out of the socialist worldview of like the performers are the composers, are the employers, are the employees, like we should dissolve all these hierarchies. And so, you know, the All-Stars are this very hip kind of iconoclastic, amplified, uh, you know, non-traditional ensemble, but they have this very, um, somewhat bizarre and very interesting, certainly as a scholar structure of, you know, the all, everyone is a collaborator, but the artistic directors of the group do not perform within it. Um, and so, especially in the early years, a lot of decisions came from the Bang Can office or the Bang Can founders. And that led to a number of tensions that I kind of break down in the book as well. I want to um, maybe switch gears and ask you just more generally about your, your research process. Obviously, you've done uh, many, many interviews um, and you've gone to various archives and found things. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was? Um, and specifically, I'm interested in if you had moments of in your research where kind of the, something that you found uh, changed the direction of your research in some kind of way. Yeah, you know, I have been doing interviewing composers as part of my research since, you know, 2012, 2013. Um, and that's always been something that's really important. Um, I'm not an ethnomusicologist, um, but I learned a lot of ethno approaches um, in grad school. And I think that I've learned so much from talking, finding out things by talking to people that I don't think I ever would have found out from reception history, you know, looking at newspapers or, or magazines or, or archival research, looking at institution or, or composer archives. Um, and so many of the early interviews I did told me about things that were slightly off, what I thought were originally kind of slightly off the track of Bang Anakin's kind of main narrative that they cultivated around themselves, but led me to these other institutions that I ended up discovering were, were really interesting and important in this period, like, like the granting organization Meet the Composer, which is a, a big part of the book. Um, and so the, the process for me with this was, you know, I had this core amazing core of research, which was Bang Anakin's institutional archives, which included, they gave me access to their hard drives um, in, in the uh, dissertation phase. So I have thousands of documents going back to the 1990s that are fascinating. Um, but I also knew that if I only relied on that, which I, I could have written a book about Bang Anakin primarily through that archive, um, I would have only gotten one kind of slice of their history. And I really needed to look at other archives, other institutions to fully get the full picture. And so, um, you know, there are enormous, there are a number of great collections that I used at the New York State, um, sorry, at the New York Public Library, um, the Performing Arts Branch um, for different institutions. Also like composers like Jacob Druckmann, his papers are there. Um, the organization New Music USA, which is the kind of um, pre um, successor to New Music, uh, to Meet the Composer. Um, I spent, uh, they very generously um, helped bring their Meet the Composer archives from a storage facility to their offices so I could spend a couple of days going through them. Um, and so all of these archives helped me get a greater understanding of the world around Bang on a Can um, and really get an insider perspective on what's happening in the broader world of contemporary composition in this period. And so 
being able to constantly go between the people in the archives and the people in the archives was was extraordinarily helpful and revealing because especially with Gordon Lang and Wolf, um, who were very generous in, in their time and in, in speaking with me and 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 um, you know being interested in the project and supportive of the project, um, you know they have been telling the same stories about themselves for thirty five years, um, and that is normal. Like there's nothing abnormal about that, and so they're they're used to telling a kind of standard history of Bangor Camp, um, and you know that's not it's not like there's anything wrong with that history. Uh, I think there are a few kind of like maybe mistakes in that history. And there are certainly, it's obviously a history that's their personal history of the organization. But I was constantly finding things in the archive that would complicate that history, both in kind of small ways and big ways. Um, like one of the most basic things is like, and, and this is really just an anecdote that reveals, you know, how these kind of histories can get hardened. Um, and then and then you can kind of un, uh, you know, unpack them in a different way is like, um, the story that I was told, and it, it might even, Julia Wolf's dissertation is a history of Anganakin. That's quite interesting and good. Um, it might be in there. It might be in one of the interview, a couple of the interviews I did. You know, they kind of said like, they put on this first Anganakin marathon and, you know, it was this crazy event and they never thought they would do it again. And then, you know, as they were kind of packing up at the end of the night and like putting away the folding chairs and sweeping or whatever, they said, oh, like, we should do this again. Like, this was so fun. We should do it again or whatever. Um, and one of the archives that I um, was, was able to work with um, uh, the New York State Archives um, has the grant, all, a ton of material related to the New York State Council on the Arts, which is the granting organization, um, statewide organization equivalent to the National Endowment for the Arts, but for New York State. Um, and you can um, request, or pre-COVID at least, you could request scans of material. Um, basically, you could say, like, look in their finding aid and say, like, can you see if you have this stuff? And if so, will you scan it for me? And, and they charge you, but it's not a crazy amount of money. And so I, I had got thousands of, of, of pages of documents from them, including basically all of Bang and Akan's grant applications to NISCA uh, in this period I was studying. Um, and those grant applications had all kinds of really interesting information. And, and just one of the little tidbits was like, in, I don't know, so the, the, the first Bang and Akan marathon was May 1987. And somewhere in I don't know, maybe February 1987, something like that. They submit to NISCA a grant proposal for the second Bang on a Can Marathon. So like, which makes sense because you have to submit grant proposals pretty far ahead of time. So like, obviously they knew that they were gonna have a second marathon. They were like, had a whole fleshed out proposal for it before the first one happened. Um, I feel like part of the legend is also that they're, they called it the first annual on the yes, 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 yes. first annual. Mm -hmm. And they said that was just, a, we meant that as a joke because yeah. who would mm -hmm. ever want to do this again? That becomes part of the sort of irreverence of their, um, you know, of the founders that they would make a joke like that when, you know, the reality is they're really great administrators and they were. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, line. you know, I think that there's a, um, a fantastic article by the scholar Eric Drott about um, the question of new music and genre and basically about how composers constantly disavow genre categories for themselves because they don't want they don't want any context for their music other than the music itself. You know, there's a long-standing belief in that. And, you know, that's also, I think, a helpful way to think about the fact that despite the fact, like I, I, I'm trying to make the point in the book that they were very good at what they did as administrators. And like, they were constantly kind of pushing back against that simply because I think that that can lead to this kind of accusations of like, you're, you're, you're better. I don't know, like you're more of an administrator than a composer or something, or like you're too savvy or like, you know, composers are supposed to be, you know, only concerned with their music and not concerned with the world. Like that's a kind of, you know, Beethoven mythos, right. Um, 
But like, yeah, you know, I have all the materials that show that. And I talked to people, you know, some of the other people who worked with them in this period and said like, yeah, they were very dedicated to like writing grant letters and stuff like that. Um, and that's something that's important to understand how they became what they became. One other thing I wanted to ask you about um, before we run out of time is the, the sort of structure of your book. I think it's really elegantly organized into it's chronological, but each chapter somehow hangs around a particular topic, even though you managed to make it chronological. Can you talk a little bit about like how you determined what these kind of pillars of information, funding, recording industry, and how you managed to tell a kind of chronological story through those? Like what's the development of that, that organization? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't quite remember where the origins of the structure came from. What I do know is that I think in my first year at Maryland, I wrote a grant application for an internal grant uh, for summer funding to do research. Um, and I'm very generous for all the support that Maryland has given to the book, um, where I basically, that was my first kind of mini book proposal where I kind of laid out what the book was going to be on the structure. And I think at that point, I had started to fix that structure into place, which was I knew that I wanted to start at Yale in the early 80s, and I knew that I wanted to end in the late 90s with, I knew that the, the Music for Airports project was going to be a good place to kind of wrap things up in terms of um, this being a kind of prestigious, well-selling album that has all these ish interesting issues around it in the late 90s, um, and that I wanted to touch on all these kind of watershed moments. And so... I originally like thought that each chapter would talk a lot about a different kind of institution. Like, for example, I thought that the All Stars chapter might be called Ensembles and talk about all the different ensembles in New York in this period or in the US in this period and then zeroed on the All Stars. And, you know, gradually that it became clear that I could do some of that by, by still centering Bang on a Can, for example. Um, I originally had a chapter that was going to be about critics and kind of trying to figure out what if there was some kind of fundamental change in the world of music criticism in this period that led to Bang on a Ken getting a lot of good or at least interesting reviews in this period. And like certain things fell away that didn't necessarily, that weren't focused kind of more internally on the institutional infrastructure, but it was basically about laying out what are the big moments for Bang on a Can and then what are the big moments within this larger kind of marketplace turn and how could I kind of thread that needle and you know, my, my um, editor uh, for this project initially, Suzanne Ryan, who was, who was fantastically supportive of the project at Oxford University Press. Um, I remember meeting with her early on and kind of explaining like, okay, so we're gonna start here and end up here. And like each chapter will do a different thing. And she was like, okay. And I was like, you know, each chapter will introduce all these different institutions. She's like, okay, but like, how do you maintain any sense of like narrative or like structure? And I was like, okay, well, these characters are gonna like, I was re I've been, I would say the most helpful stuff to read is I, I felt like in the last few years, I've read a lot more, read a lot more narrative nonfiction than I did before. And just being able to think about, okay, like in this, all this stuff that's happening, how can we maintain the centrality of these three characters, Gordon Lang and Wolf, while also having people like John Duffy, the founder, meet the composer, pop back consistently as someone who we know who they are, we know what their worldview is, and we can kind of use them as a as, as, a, as a tracing point. And some of these institutions come back again and again and again. Um, and, you know, that's a narrative thing, but they also come back again and again and again because they were hugely important and like keep showing up in different ways. So yeah, I wish I, I, wish I had a good answer for how that thing clicked into place, but I was definitely, um, I'm glad you found it as a useful way to kind of tell the story because there's so much to slice it up simply chronologically and not by institution, I think would get too confusing. Um, and yeah. to slice it up by institution and not chronologically would also be confusing. So you yeah. did, I, think, I think you managed to thread the needle by showing 
as this organization developed or as these three composers developed their careers, um, how were they taking advantage of the kind of structural, you know, the institutions or the, the world of touring or the world of recording? And it, it, it's a natural pairing with how their careers developed with how you focus each of these sections. Yeah, thank you. And like the one thing that, uh, you know, I would say that a large number of, of contemporary kind of musicology, ethnomusicology books take the, take the form, um, which is really a form adapted from a dissertation style, which is my dissertation does this too, of basically a series of case studies. So you have chapters that work independently of one another, but build towards a larger argument that's kind of laid out in each chapter. Um, and I really like a lot of books like that because especially you can, you can read the intro and then read like chapter four and feel like you've gotten a good sense of the book. But, you know, this book was always going to, I, or at least quite early on, I knew I wanted to try to make it something that was accessible to a general public and that would read as a complete narrative from beginning to end um, so that you go somewhere over the course of the book and that, you know, for better or worse, I think for worse in the sense that it is, I think it's probably harder for someone to assign a chapter from this book to a class to be able to get everything out of it, um, which is good about the kind of case study approaches. You can say like, this chapter is the most, I think the most compelling or the most useful to understand some kind of theoretical idea that I wanna to teach to my musicology seminar. Um, but also like, I, I want, I kind of do want people to read it as a book. Uh, and I think that's like, the difference that I see between this and like journal articles that I work on, which do act as kind of independent self-standing entities. is like, I wanted there to be a narrative and to have some sense of like, I lay out some claims and ideas in the, in the very final pages of the, of the conclusion of that blog or whatever. Um, and like, those are ideas that I don't even like want to talk about because I want people to have read the whole book before they get to them to a certain point. Well, I don't want to talk about them right now, for example. No, no um, yeah, no spoilers. Um, yeah, at the, so Snape kills Dumbledore. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I, so going back to season one, episode one of a podcast called Sound Expertise, which yes. you were the host of, um, you introduced this podcast by telling a story about uh, how you, when you're sitting on a plane next to someone and they ask you what you do and you say, I'm, teach music history and you, you're scared to use the word musicology and one of the goals of this podcast is to kind of make some of these academic ideas accessible to a general audience so I, I'm curious you, you started to say it just at the end of your last answer but who is the the audience in your mind for this book and um, how does that relate to I don't know your mission as a as a scholar as a writer as a podcast host yeah you know, I, I guess I always thought of it as being basically like people who probably already know what Bang on a Can is. That could be anyone. Ideally, you know, probably some musicians, composers, people who might show up to a Bang on a Can marathon. Um, and, I, and I still, you know, the book is still an academic book and I do want it to be read by my colleagues and I hope understood as a, hopefully a significant work in, in my field. Um, but, you know, I think one thing that I don't quite know, which I think I'll be interesting to interested to find out once the book's out is like, the more I worked through it, and especially in dialogue with, with Suzanne, my, my fantastic editor, the more I pulled out kind of more of the academies, the longer kind of more theoretical things and tried to streamline a little bit of that and make it kind of more story-based. Um, 
And so in theory, the writing style of the book is not any different, I think, from, let's say, the writing I do for the New York Times, which I like to think is accessible to anyone. Um, although sometimes my parents' friends say they couldn't understand a single word in anything I wrote in the New York Times, which is fine. Um, so like, I, you know, I, I'll be curious to see if someone who doesn't know anything, who like, for example, like I, I feel like my book, it's not a textbook obviously. And it's not an introduction to contemporary music. Like, you know, if people are like, how should I learn about contemporary music? I'll say, go read Alex Ross's book, The Rest is Noise. And so the question is like, I feel like ideally my book is for someone who already read The Rest is Noise and then can read this and understand all of it. I do wonder if like someone who doesn't know anything about any of this world could pick it up and read it. And like, I don't, I don't know yet. And so we'll see, um, you know, I'll kind of use my family as a benchmark for that. Uh, you know, if they- Parents, if friends. They, yeah, parents, friends. I, well, I don't know if they'll read the whole book, but you know, maybe my parents or my, you know, my cousins are in there. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I really have no idea what's going to happen. It's exciting. Uh, comes out next week. So yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us in our podcast. Thank you for joining us in our podcast. Uh, I am going to retreat from my host status back to producer status. And I will promote you from guest status back to host status. Great. Um, Okay, cool. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, Will. Thank you all so much for listening to that extensive rant about my book. It's out on February 22nd with Oxford University Press, and you can find out more by going to williamrobin.com industry. That evening, I'll be in conversation with the great music critic Alan Cozen for a live streamed book release event hosted by the 92nd Street Y. And you can follow me on Twitter at Seated Ovation for more about all this stuff. Many, many thanks to D. Edward Davis for taking on the role of interviewer slash host for this episode and for being the best producer in the biz. That's his theme music you've been hearing, and you can check out more of his work on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. As always, more info about today's episode is on soundexpertise.org. And yes, season two is coming soon. Let's hear that trailer. In order to speak yourself into the narrative of freedom, right, you have to go back to that historical point where that question of freedom begins, and that is with the spiritual. So this female engagement with the spiritual, you know, takes on these very expansive levels of meaning. Sometimes I think of this in terms of adding a public health warning on works. So this work brought to you in part by the history of the profits of the slave trade. You ask me what's my role as a musicologist? There you got it. My role is to be a contrarian. My role is to be a skeptic. My role is to not let anything pass unexamined. So I wasn't really expecting to have the explosion that occurred. Certainly not the hostility, the animus, uh, the death threats. It, it was really kind of extraordinary, the violence of the response. On Tuesday, March 23rd, Sound Expertise is back. In season two of the podcast, we'll be talking about Black women musicians in the civil rights movement, diversifying music theory, 
Rebecca Black's Friday and Viral Music Making, How to Teach Music History, Handel's Role in the Slave Trade, and much, much more with some of the most fascinating music scholars out there. See you soon.